Hi there, I'm Gabriella Mulligan. And I'm Tom Jackson. And welcome to the second episode of our four-part series digging into the African venture capital space, brought to you in partnership with our friends at Corona Capital, 10X Entrepreneur, Catalyst Fund, and Knife Capital. Over the course of this series, we're discussing all things venture capital, looking at VCs' business models, how startups and VCs work together, and what issues remain unresolved within the space. In the first episode, released last week, we went through the nuts and bolts of VC, defining what venture actually is, discussing where VC firms get their money from, how they make money themselves, and what an investor actually does all day. We concluded that, actually, VC firms are much like startups in many ways. In this episode, we'll discuss the actual processes behind doing a VC deal and the various ways in which investors can exit a startup and make a return. We'll also get into due diligence and why it's not just the investors that need to do their research in advance. Once again, many thanks to our partners, Corona Capital, 10X Entrepreneur, Catalyst Fund and Knife Capital. And we hope you enjoy this episode. In last week's episode, we discussed the VC firm's business model, what VCs do with their time, and how they go about building portfolios. With all that theory out of the way then, let's move on to the actual process of doing a deal. Here's Knife Capital's Kiet Van Sale. These things all start somewhere. It starts with a conversation or with an email um, of, a, of, a, of an entrepreneur having an ask to say, look, this is my, this is my business. Um, are you interested to invest? I am raising funding. You would then have the initial meetings with that entrepreneur to to just feel it out. Is it a good fit? Um, each fund, as a, as I mentioned, has a different mandate. So so when we'll look at can we work with this not only entrepreneurial team, but can it sort of fulfil our return expectations? Those type of things. You just feel that out. The transaction then really goes into <clears throat> some form of early due diligence, early homework, to be able to offer a um, piece of paper you know someone some vcs go straight to to term sheets you know we go to a letter of intent which just basically say our intent is to invest x million dollars um we would expect x percent equity a seat on the board the following minority protections um and and, and that's more or less how the transaction could look so you sort of have some early negotiations before everyone spends significant resources time into the you know, further due diligence. So then one closes that due diligence process saying, right, we have now found each other. We generally don't find founders that like really um, misrepresent um, what's going on in the business. You know, we don't expect everything to be perfect. We're investing in early stage young businesses. There are going to be some form of blood on the dance floor. And our our job is to to help the entrepreneur gain that trust to to tell us about it so that we can fix it together. But then comes the legal, you know, the finalization of the legal process to say, okay, right now, post due diligence, we either alter the terms a bit, or now we we would like to put some milestones in place of how do we build this business and we approve, you know, the five year plans and the budgets. So you put the legal um, documents together, which is typically a share subscription agreement. So you subscribe for shares. There's a shareholders agreement, if, which is if you are an earlier stage investment, there's a, a thing called a safe agreement, simple agreement for future equity, which is which is a little bit simpler and and more structured towards towards quickly doing transactions and for future rounds. And yeah, then the the closing process and the money flows, and suddenly you are a partner in a business that needs to help grow. 
Johan Bassini from Corona Capital says though each VC firm will have its own specifics when it comes to the types of companies it invests in, the process of actually getting a deal done remains very similar from firm to firm. When they come across a couple of businesses, they'll need to look at what the comparisons are or the comps. Uh, so it's not just meeting a business face at face value and deciding to move ahead. It's really understanding are there three or four other competitors who are potentially better funded or have better teams or a competitive advantage maybe that uh, that you don't. So it's really looking at uh, comparing the different players in that category, not just in that market, but also more broadly saying, well, let's compare businesses in other regions and how did they fare and what kind of valuation methodology did they use, et cetera. So there's a lot of, uh, of data analysis and com- comparing where companies are and, and choosing the right one. Once you find a deal that you really like, uh, it's a case of getting internal alignment. Uh, it'll be writing memos, sharing with the team, uh, potentially having a broader team call where you bring in more partners or more, more of the team in the VC to meet with or, or have a video call with the, the founding team. Uh, once there's broad agreement that this is the company to back, then it's a decision on do we lead or do we not, if that's uh, the type of VC you are. Uh, for us, it's leading a deal, so it's putting together a term sheet. Um, it's getting IC approval to do that and uh, submitting a term sheet to a company um, and uh, negotiating that term sheet with the company. Uh, it might not be accepted first time. There may be competing term sheets. Uh, it may be a scenario of one or two of the uh, the terms in that term sheet are not accepted and that gets negotiated. Once that's accepted, it then is uh, diving into a more meaningful due diligence, which is a combination of, uh, of either legal, uh, financial, technical, or a combination thereof. Um, and then it's also a case of building a syndicate. Uh, the syndicate would be who else we would like to come in and invest alongside us, uh, driven very much by the founding team. It's not entirely our decision who comes along and invests. It's really making sure that the founding team is very comfortable with who's coming in. You can add more value than just capital. So this will be people with deep understanding of the sector, of the market, uh, et cetera, who can really be a thought partner with that founding team. Um, once the DD is done and ready to, uh, to invest, uh, there normally is a final approval process depending on the IC structure, uh, and then capital will, uh, will flow beyond that. There is normally an onboarding process um, where uh, it's a case of, of agreeing with the company what the value is that the, the VC firm can bring, the cadence of reporting, the type of information required, and all those good things, uh, and then money flows. But how do VC firms actually go about sourcing these startups in the first place? Here's Mylise Carraro from Catalyst Fund. When it comes to sourcing, we do a lot of research ourselves. So we go out there and uh, try to speak with a lot of entrepreneurs that we have identified as being a match to our fund thesis. Uh, but we also get pitched a lot um, and encourage actually entrepreneurs to to do so and reach out via all sorts of, of channels. So, so LinkedIn, sending our docs via email, reaching out via the website. We often also do challenges or competitions so that we do receive um, interest from from entrepreneurs. Uh, and that's because the market is getting a lot more competitive and you as an investor actually have to prove your value to startups just as much as they need to prove the value of the business to you. One question I had for our investors was this. If you make an investment in a startup at pre-seed or seed stage, what happens to your stake when the startup raises its Series A round, for example? Johan has the answer. Two broad things can happen in this case. Uh, either a venture firm would participate in the next round 
and they would invest their pro rata amount, which is normally their right to invest uh, to keep their existing shareholding, or they would uh, not invest and therefore dilute proportionally in the same uh, to, to the same extent as the founders. Uh, so it would be a new investor coming in, and all the existing shareholders who don't invest would then dilute. It's also possible for an earlier stage investor to exit their investment via a process known as a secondary share sale. So, for example, a VC firm invests in a startup Series A round, but wants to own more shares than they've been able to acquire. In this case, they express interest in purchasing secondaries from earlier stage investors, usually angels, who have the option to sell their shareholding. This is a very common way of exiting for an angel, whose time horizons are often shorter than larger, later stage investors. A secondary share sale is just one type of exit an investor can make. We'll get into all that later in the episode. But in the meantime, let's just clear up this thing about stages of investment. Johan takes us through it from the beginning. Typically, it would be an angel round or putting your own capital in. Then it's a, uh, what we've seen is a quite a few pre-seed rounds, which is someone who is not yet in a position to raise a seed round, then a seed, then an A, and then a B. And by the time you get to an A, you're talking about the institutional investors who are focusing on product market fit. Pre-A, you can get away with being pre-product market fit. These stages don't necessarily equate with certain amounts of money, but rather certain metrics, such as number of clients or levels of development. One startup Series A can be very different in size to another's, and indeed an African Series A has historically been much smaller than a Silicon Valley Series A, for example, though the gap is now closing. Are there any other differences when it comes to doing deals in Africa as opposed to elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I think on a whole, the process is 80-20 the same and similar. I mean, we we, we all learn from each other and, and I guess re- read the same materials and 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 try and upskill on a global basis how, how it works. But there are nuances around specific kind of market sizes, industries, geographies, um, legislation, things. There are some real subtleties around specifically financial inclusion and, and fintech and, and, and which you would find over here. Um, and, and, and international investors are sometimes a little bit surprised that they wouldn't have considered that. But, but on the whole, the process is, the, is similar. That was Kiet. Johan says the speed of deals in Africa can perhaps mean less due diligence is done. We are seeing um, rounds happen much faster, driven by international capital coming into Africa for the first time. Uh, And again, that might be, uh, maybe the answer is there's no difference with what's happened in the US. I'm not too familiar with that ecosystem. But I do think that you have a lot of of, uh, exuberance in the the African market right now. And the result is you're seeing some rounds happen really quickly because the, uh, the amount of capital coming into one particular company is very small in the bigger scheme of things to that company or that, that venture firm. Uh, and the result is you're seeing very little diligence, which I think is, uh, is probably not exactly the same in some markets where you have uh, venture firms much closer to the market able to do some real macro research where maybe it's not happening here. Talking of due diligence, what exactly does that typically involve? Here's Kiet. Yeah, so due diligence is another word for for homework. Um, it's a comprehensive appraisal of the of looking at the business by a prospective investor, evaluate the commercial potential, you know, before doing the the, the transaction. So generally, it's it's in buckets of commercial due diligence. So looking at the the market sizing, the the price points, the the offering, the product, 
what um, pain point it solves, why is now the right time to do solve that that pain point, who are the competitors, those type of commercial elements of the of the of the transaction. One does a financial due diligence, so particularly look at the the modeling of that. Um, so so people often say, well, you know, it's gonna be wrong anyway, so so let's just go for it. Why do you need the financial model? But it is a combination of all the commercial strategies coming in there, you know, your your hiring strategies, your pricing strategies, and and you need to at least have a baseline for for saying, well, if if it's going to work, it's going to work like this. Definitely doesn't pan out like that uh, that uh, Excel spreadsheet. But then you need to know why, what has gone wrong, and in, in, in your in your in your post mortems. So legal due diligence, really looking at the the legislation of it all, and um, freedom to operate and and those type of things under the under the intellectual property side of things. But um, yeah, so contracting terms of conditions and and, and really looking at, at w- how this business will grow across jurisdiction. Typically, you can't just look at the business in one country. Most VC transactions, when they start scaling, have cross-border potential. So you need to look at it from that perspective. Yeah, and the IP element of under the legal side is, is very, very important because generally these businesses are, are high-growth, scalable typically technology businesses. So you need to look at the the brands and the trademarks and the software elements and and sometimes even patents and, and how this translates into into future strategies. And and lastly technical. So you know because it is generally technology heavy, you need to look at some some source code and and make sure this is scalable, that the techniques that the teams use for building and quality testing and 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 that kind of stuff is in place. And also that there's the right type of licenses and and specifically when it comes to open source software to just make sure that you 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 know what you're doing there. My lease says levels of due diligence vary from stage to stage and investor to investor. Yes, I think due diligence does differ uh, depending on the investor and depending on the stage at which you're investing in. For example, at the seed stage or even pre-seed stage, which where we invest in, um, the businesses are very early. They might have a product in market, a few customers, but are really about getting to the proof points that later investors need to see in order to raise that subsequent seed round or series A round. So at this stage, there's not a lot to due diligence, essentially. Um, but you do still have um, a few, a certain things that you look for. So you definitely look a lot at the team, how founders work together, how convinced they are on the problems they're trying to solve, what's the understanding that they have of that problem or, or opportunity. Uh, in particular, what research they've done, what connections they have in the market, um, and sort of their thinking process in, in building their value proposition. Then we also look at um, the product itself and try to do so with a data-driven approach. So we actually ask the founders to share with us, um, if they're comfortable, under NDAs if needed, any data that they have collected so far uh, from the product and and even open up sort of the databases with us so that we can ourselves do some uh, deeper analysis around customer acquisitions costs, retentions, you know, cohort analysis to understand how customers are using the product and progressing over time. That is something that we can do um, with our with our model um, in a bit more of a hands-on way, but recognize that it's a bit more expensive if you're running a two-people VC fund. So again, it differs based on the model of, of, the, of the fund that you have. 
Um, and um, then we also look at um, the market fundamentals and sort of what the conditions are and ask usually for feedback. So we try to talk to customers that are already using the product, talk to partners, uh, say, for example, a company has a B2B model. We talk to their partners uh, and companies that the startup is working with to get direct feedback um, on how that relationship is going and the value that the product is offering. Uh, and through all of those, you know, we put them together and that gives us a good picture of um, the potential of the firm at the pre-seed stage. Johan agrees that due diligence is totally different for, say, an angel as opposed to a Series B investor, though some things remain the same. I think dramatically different uh, by stage. Uh, an angel investment um, it has a lot more to do with uh, just a gut feel around, do I like this person? Do I think this category is great? And do I understand it? Uh, and again, not all, all angel investors would do that. But if I think of maybe personal experience, it's really around just going, is this the person and is this a category that I believe this person can can succeed in? So definitely a lot more gut feel, far less diligence, um, and as well as just diligence takes time and it costs money. So I think angel investors are, are far less likely to do that. A lot of reference checks uh, on the people and maybe on the category as well. Um, as you go further down, definitely more diligence. Uh, you know, we, we truly believe that uh, it's there for good reason. It's a, It's a very good governance practice to follow a diligence checklist. Uh, depending on the type of business, uh, it, uh, it would be um, regulatory, uh, accounting, and legal diligence, um, especially in financial services. I do think you want to make sure you're playing or that the company is operating in a way that is entirely legal. Uh, and then the second piece is, is um, technology diligence, which uh, again, it will depend on the business model. If it's a business where they've written their own technology or highly reliant on the uh, the technology being the real USP, uh, and it's slightly later stage, then I do think you want to do, do a, a pretty light, uh, you know, tech diligence, which will take a couple of days. Um, the the big one, no matter which stage you're talking about, though, I do think is one of um, com- kind of scanning the market for comparisons. Just understanding the diligence being, uh, in this case, being, do we understand who the role players are in this market uh, and where does this team or this company fall within that? And then the other one is just old school ref checks. You know, ultimately, in an early stage investment, uh, seed, series A, you're backing a team first and a business second. So I think the team, every time uh, I've seen, it all comes down to that, that founding team uh, and really being able to ascertain whether this is someone who or some team that is coachable, uh, understands their category and is uh, is aligned in terms of what uh, what we're aiming to achieve, which is, in this case, financial inclusion. Once your due diligence is done and you're satisfied with its outcome, you can make an investment. The goal of doing so, however, is to eventually want to exit that investment. There are four typical ways of doing this, one being the secondary share sale mentioned earlier in the episode. However, VC firms investing at later stages are usually aiming for one of the other three. An initial public offering, where new shares in the business are made available to the public via a stock exchange, a direct listing, where existing shares are sold to investors on the public stock market, or a trade, sale or acquisition, where the startup is acquired or bought outright by another company. There is, of course, always the possibility that the business fails. But of the happy exits, which are the most likely? I think IPOs are super interesting. We've seen a couple already. They are complicated. They do require to be a business of a certain size. So it's, uh, it's really aiming for a, an outsized uh, return and, and a huge outcome. 
which is not always possible. You know, I think IPOs do have their complications. Uh, uh, the question around where do you list um, and and is your business big enough to be able to get a, um, a very interesting um, uh, result, uh, which isn't always the case. That was Johan. The IPO route has not been trodden too much by African businesses, with Forey, Jumia and Swivel, the standout companies, to have listed their shares publicly. Many aspire to it, yet it is a hard business. Jason Goldberg from 10X Entrepreneur says those that choose this path really need to be prepared. What does that mean exactly? That they are aligned towards um, those outcomes. So in the case of an IPO, the nature of the venture is aligned towards what public markets want to invest in at a more mature stage. And that's not everything. So, for to, for example, today you would you would not be taking a business that is making coal mining more efficient. It may be a breakthrough technology. It maybe it's going to make tons of money, but if fundamentally it it enables coal mining, you're not going to IPO that. Nobody is going to sponsor an IPO of a business like that. And so there are a whole bunch of other factors that would make a business IPOable or non-IPOable. But but the key thing about an IPO outcome, I mean, there are many key things. But you know, um, one of the key things is you need to need a lot more capital in future. Um, that would be one of the reasons to IPO. You're quite mature now, and you you know you've got a capital hungry growth model, and you want access to the capital markets, and you know very efficient access to equity capital markets. Um, and then the second is because you believe that the the you know the the listed equity markets will pay a premium over private markets, and so you believe you can just achieve you know a lot more wealth creation on those markets. And normally that that is true, but it has to be so lucrative um, that it's worth the significant inflation of your costs and deterioration of your, you know, your growth trajectory because it is so cumbersome um, to IPO. Um, cumbersome once off and ongoing in terms of you know, the, the compliance uh, requirements and associated costs. All of that means a strategic acquisition or trade sale is a more likely route to exit for African startups, with perhaps the best example of such a deal so far being the acquisition of Paystack by Stripe in 2020. Kiatsa's opportunities for such an exit would be evaluated by VCs prior to investment. You would already in the due diligence phase look at who else is potentially acquiring businesses in this space, how would the competitive environment evolve, will there be a market consolidation, because of the fact that if you can, if you build a business with, you know, metrics and profits and revenue growth and and all those good things and at the same time understand why someone would acquire this business and and typically it's not necessarily going to be for your revenue growth it might be because of your customer base or your your sales channels or the the, the technology ip stack that you have built sometimes it's an acqui hire we see we see you know entrepreneurs are not typically very employable you can't go headhunt them, but you can buy the whole business and say, okay, for the next two to three years or, or so forth, you you, you um, work with our teams and transfer those skills. So the growth strategy really needs to support that particular exit strategy. Johan agrees that any exit strategy would usually be planned from the beginning. Right up front, when we invest, we have to uh, look at the scenario of what would an exit look like. So we do have um, uh, some assumptions and it's different per company. So it depends on the company. Uh, we would normally target that kind of exit once we have strong conviction that's the right opportunity. You can get taken by surprise when it comes to exiting, says Marlies. 
of the four exits that we have seen in our portfolio, um, actually, I must admit that we were not necessarily anticipating them to happen so quickly. And because some of them were actually uh, acquihires, we have not seen them coming in the early days of working with the founders. Um, but as their models themselves evolved, um, they have become perhaps more obvious one to two years after we, we invested. So in, yeah, in truth, um, I don't think that our examples would necessarily be good examples of this is what it takes to be successful and lead to an exit. I do think that overall in the market, you do have some elements uh, of business fundamentals that you do see as preconditions of a successful exit. Whether you are, for example, tapping a very large market, whether you you have seen uh, a very big customer growth over time. Like one of the companies, for instance, in our portfolio that I think is, uh, two actually that are on the track to um, raising a lot of money and potentially exit soon are Chipper Cash and, and Soccer Watch. So is there a philosophy there and, and um, a trend that you could see that like we are seeing the same thing over and over again? I'd say from our perspective, that hasn't been the case. Um, but as the space evolves, I, I think this we might see um, a lot more lessons that we can draw. Kiet says planning for the exit right from the start is one of the traits that founders that have successfully exited have in common. I think they had more of a deliberate exit strategy in place as as commonality. You know, a little bit driven, I guess, by the VC funder that they that they had, <laughs> being us. But um, deliberate strategy and uh, and high growth and a sustainable business model. You know, I, 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 there is sometimes you know over focus on raising further rounds, raising further rounds at very high um, valuations. But to get that business to 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 exit, you know, we, we you have to look at the acquirability of your business and. Um, you know, when you're facing an M&A team of, of a strategic investor, they know what they're doing, you know, and they look at metrics. It's not always relevant, but they look at things like revenue multiples, comparables out in the market, um, et cetera. So I, I would say that, that there was that in common as well as some element of white noise in the, in the market, meaning consolidation there were other competitors acquiring smaller businesses and there was some element of consolidation and um luck i, I would i wouldn't um discount the 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 role of luck and timing you know you really can't ride it over the top by holding these businesses for too long and um, because then someone else might you know acquire the competitor of that business and create a larger business and become the the market leader so luck and timing plays a part but Build sustainable businesses, build interesting businesses, build them to build, not build them to exit. But um, but just keep an eye on who will acquire the business, why they will do it, and make sure that they notice you. And one best way to note, make sure they notice you is to to hunt uh, some of their clients away from them or, or just go and disrupt an industry. And uh, yeah, then suddenly the, the acquirers will, will, will knock on your door. Inbound interest are two wonderful words. Everyone would agree that we have not seen enough successful exits within the African tech space, but they are increasing in number, and as the space matures, will become increasingly commonplace. We hope you enjoyed episode two of this VC-focused podcast series. Next week, 
we'll turn our attention to how founders and investors can work together post-deal and discuss how a business changes once it has taken on venture capital. In the meantime, that's all for now. Thanks again to our partners, Corona Capital, 10X Entrepreneur, Catalyst Fund and Knife Capital. And to you for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.